when you think about how much we know about our customers and their transactions. Many of them have their direct deposit from their companies that come into Wells Fargo. They've got their checking accounts, they've got their banking accounts, they've got credit cards, and now they're coming in to buy a house. And, And so there's an opportunity through all of those interactions to really understand what the needs of that customer are, and then how do they think about their financial life, and how does that then factor in to being able to serve their needs. Hi, Housing News listeners. This is Alcina Lloyd, and I'm the producer of this weekly podcast, which is a proud member of the Industry Syndicate. You just heard a quote from today's guest, Christy Furco, who is the executive vice president and head of home lending at Wells Fargo, also serving as the chairman-elect of the Mortgage Bankers Association. In this episode, our host Sarah Wheeler interviews Furco on how Wells Fargo is best serving borrowers during COVID-19, the overall effect for Barron's exits will have on the housing market, and whether or not she's optimistic about the big bank model. As always, we appreciate the support of our sponsor, USMI, and here's episode 11 of season five of the Housing News Podcast. Welcome, everyone. This is Sarah Wheeler, Editor-in-Chief at Housing Wire, with the latest episode of our Housing News Podcast. I'm very excited to introduce our guest today, Christy Furco. Christy is Executive Vice President and Head of Wells Fargo Home Lending. She is also the Chairman-Elect of the Mortgage Bankers Association. Welcome, Christy. Thank you, Sarah. It's great to be with you. Oh, we're so excited. Um, you know, the first question we always want to ask is, how did you get into the industry? Because this isn't one that, you know, normally people when they're 10, they're like, I'm going to do this. So I'd love to know what your story is. Yeah, well, I appreciate that because I am not your usual mortgage banker um, where I kind of flew into it. I actually was working with PepsiCo. I was in human resources with PepsiCo. Uh, in uh, Purchase, New York, and 9-11 happened. And I um, was contemplating, you know, like most of us, the meaning of life. And I was figuring out how to balance this workaholic DNA with this altruistic need to give back and decided selling chips and soda for the rest of my life wasn't it. And so I started researching companies and I researched three, Fannie Mae, Red Cross, and Disney. And uh, not that I thought Disney was so altruistic, but it was in California. And when you're in New York, when 9-11 happens and all your family's in California, you feel a need to get back home. And the ironic thing is 30 days later on October 11th, I got a call from a headhunter about the role at Fannie Mae. And uh, I believe my life is divinely orchestrated. And so that took me into Fannie Mae, I accepted the job and I started as the head of human resources for the single family business. So that was actually my first entree into mortgage. And um, it was, you know, it just been a great ride from there. I was there for five years in the HR role and then had the opportunity to actually move into the line business and manage all of our small customers. And that got me in the industry. And here we are today. That is such a great story. Um, and so fitting that you started in HR and here you are, you're, you're leading an organization of 25,000 people. So I'm sure that some of those same lessons are, are being well applied. They really are. And in fact, it, it's amazing 
how much my HR background, which has really been focused on how do you get the best out of people? How do you get the best out of organizations and drive organizational effectiveness to achieve results of the organization? It's amazing how those HR skills come to life every day in managing a business and now you know, such a large people-intensive business. Well, let's um, let's turn a little bit. We are about to hit the one year mark. We're at the one year mark for the CARES Act, and you know what a year it has been, obviously. And there yeah. are still about two point five million homeowners that are in forbearance. So Wells Fargo, as as one of the biggest servicers, I mean, you service about one in every eight loans. So how are you meeting the challenges of reaching and serving all those borrowers a year into this COVID era? Yeah, it's really crazy, Sarah, to believe that it's almost been a year. And in fact, as we're in March of 2021, I'm saying it feels like this is the 15th month of year 2020. Um, It's been crazy that throughout the 12 months, you know, we've been so focused on what do we need to do to be able to help our customers and help our communities really navigate through this unprecedented upheaval. It's been quite extraordinary. And it's been fun joining Wells Fargo in the middle of this and seeing the commitment that Wells Fargo has had to doing just that. I mean, we've helped over 3.6 million consumers and small businesses by either deferring payments or waiving fees. You know, we've provided additional assistance. We've got a credit card business and auto business. Obviously, some of the things that we've been doing, you know, in home lending and personal loans, If a customer's reached out to contact us, we've tried to figure out how do we help them do that. And so the CARES Act you talked about specifically as it relates to servicing, there's obviously some very specific things that we've been doing with that. The CARES Act specifically allows for people to have a payment suspension up to 12 months. And then just recently, they passed an additional six-month extension after that one year for you know those who are in forbearance prior to the March 21st. And so it's how do we help customers navigate the needs that they have through that forbearance. And in addition to doing it well with the CARES Act and the GSE loans or FHA loans specifically, Wells Fargo has our own portfolio. And so we've been really caring for our own portfolio in a consistent manner, just you know, really extending those CARES Act opportunities for customers of all kinds. And we've also, you know, stopped all the foreclosure related activities and that's in um, process right now through June of 2021. And, you know, just continuing to be focused on halting foreclosure activity, halting evictions, just to give people time to recover from whatever hardship they might have and be able to get back on their feet. Great to to know all the things that you guys are doing there. It's it's a it's a challenging time. You know, in, in addition to your leadership of Wells Fargo, like I mentioned, you know, you serve as chairman elect of the board and chair of the MBA's diversity and inclusion advisory committee and, and more. So with that high-level view of the housing ecosystem, what are the most pressing issues for people in the mortgage industry this year? Well, there's a lot. I mean, one, just what we just talked about in terms of continuing to work through CARES Act forbearance and really caring for customers that have been impacted by this unprecedented 
challenge and, and pandemic that we've been dealing with. And, and it's making sure that we provide the solutions to help them navigate through it, but that there's also then a soft landing on the other side when they work to transition um, through this. The second I would say, and it's been really fascinating to watch, I mean, with all of us being at home over this year, I mean, home has never been more important. And I think all of us have learned what works for us in our current homes and what actually doesn't work for us. And the housing market is heating up quite significantly, and especially the purchase market. So we've we've had this low interest rate environment that we've been navigating through that's allowed people to repurchase uh, or to refinance their homes, which has created very, you know, much needed money uh, or lower interest rates in this environment or lower monthly payments that have helped people um, sustain during this time. But then there's also, you know, been the purchase market, which is heating up. And I think that's led to another dynamic, which is this short housing and inventory supply. And as people, um, you know, it, it's a typical supply and demand with inventory levels now at historic lows across the country and having this constrained supply, there's creating this, you know, high um, upward home pressure or home price uh, increases. And that's been interesting because I think that will lead into the second issue, which is addressing affordability. If people aren't moving out of their homes or the supply is limited for people to move into, What's the opportunity then for first-time home buyers to get into a market that's affordable if home prices continue to increase? And I think that that's putting some stress on the market. And so, um, you know, in my role at the Mortgage Bankers Association, I also lead the affordable housing um, working group for the OCC and their project reach. It really gives me a great vantage point to really understand some of the challenges that are happening across the enterprise, but more importantly, how to work together with the administration, with advocates, with policymakers to be able to create some solutions to these issues that the industry is facing. I don't think it's going to get, you know, better really, really soon, right? I mean, we, we just have way more demand than supply. And then you think about the fact that if you did refi this year, you're not going to want to go into, you know, unless you have to, you're not going to be necessarily looking to move out of that uh, really cushy interest rate you got into a more normal market. So then you're like, okay, well, that's just going to keep supply even lower. That's right. That's right. So I think the opportunity really is around how do we ensure that the builder and, you know, the builder community and home starts you know, really continue to um, recover. I mean, there's obviously a supply issue with a lumber. I heard there's a four-month waiting list for appliances in some markets. And so I think the entire supply chain has been affected by this pandemic, and it's going to take some time to be able to, to work through. But, you know, again, it's one where what a great opportunity for the industry to come together and, and solve the issue that's impacting all of us right now. And here's a quick word from our sponsor. Since 1957, the private mortgage insurance industry has enabled affordable, low down payment home ownership for more than 33 million people. MI bridges the down payment gap, so low to moderate income borrowers may access home ownership sooner while protecting taxpayers from mortgage credit risk. Visit www.usmi.org to learn more.
you know, something that is certainly top of mind for many in the industry and a topic that seems to have the wind at its back with the Biden administration is the gap that we see between white and black home ownership. And when it comes to reducing that gap, what do you think is working and where are we as a country, as an industry and as individual companies falling short on that? Yeah, that's a really great question, Sarah. And it's one that's really near and dear to my heart. I mean, I um, sit as the only Black woman leading a national mortgage company. Um, this is something I am very personally focused on and have a great deal of personal passion about, which is how do we not only impact this trend around the Black home ownership rate, but how do we also make progress around the racial wealth gap? And it is really sad to me that coming out of the last housing crisis, I mean, the Black home ownership rate is 30 points lower than the white home ownership rate. And this, yeah, this is the lowest um, level that it's been at since the days of segregation. And it's very concerning to me. And I think the opportunity for the industry and what we can do to really start to work together is do exactly that. And, and again, I think the events over the last year have provided this incredible window where everyone is focused on it in the same way. So for the first time, we actually have policymakers, we have the administration, we have advocates, we have the lending community really working together to say, how do we start to come together and solve this problem? And I think it's, it's a big opportunity for us to be able to do. I've been excited coming to Wells Fargo, seeing some of the commitments that the company has had already around improving this. For the Black community specifically, we made a $60 billion commitment to growing Black home ownership. We've been very focused on a number of financing programs to offer down payment assistance, offer closing cost credit through a program that we call Dream Plan Home that we have um, rolled out this year to low and moderate income borrowers. Um, you know, in addition to providing that down payment assistance, we're providing a $5,000 closing cost credit in some market. And we are working in local markets with the housing counselors that are on the ground that can really help us understand the nuances in individual communities and how to move that forward. I talked a little bit earlier about Project REACH, and that's another great example of the OCC bringing everyone together to really bring solutions to how do we move forward. And they're taking the same approach, which is you know, what are individual lenders doing in markets? What are the learnings that we can share with other lenders? And having the advocate um, and nonprofit community give us feedback about the nuances of each individual market and, and what do we need to do specifically to move forward? And so you hear all the time people say, real estate is local. And I think there is nothing to substitute the on the ground support in those communities. And obviously that's been more difficult with COVID and you know being out in the communities and touching people and helping people understand, um, that's been really challenging this year. But we are committed to putting you know lenders or um, home lending counselors in those local communities to really start to uh, advance the homeownership rates in those communities. I really love that local focus because you're right. I mean, that's where so much of the change is going to happen. 
you know, one of the first things that I covered when I started at Housing Wire, which has been almost eight years, I guess seven and a half years ago, was um, was an MBA conference, and I went to a panel on hiring diversity. And mm-hmm. one of the panelists was from Wells Fargo, and it has stuck with me all these years later is just the groundbreaking diversity that Wells Fargo had and was really working towards, um, you know, at the time. So, so they, you know, they were really looking at um, racial diversity in their hiring, also people with different abilities, different sexual orientations, because <clears throat> the Wells Fargo panelists made the point that people do business with people who look like them. And, and they drew a straight line between their workforce and how that would impact their business and customers. And, and so I'd love to, to know a bit from you about Wells Fargo hiring now and, and how that's set up to support a diverse workforce. Yeah, well, it's the diverse hiring and the work of diversity, equity, and inclusion is very important to me. And so I, I talked a little bit about my story. I mean, I spent 15 years of my career in human resources. So I have a deep appreciation for how important it is for the workforce to mirror the, the, the community that you work in, as well as you know, this whole notion that happy employees create happy customers. And we talk about this notion of diversity and inclusion. It really is a business imperative that I think is quite clear that, especially with housing, I mean, when you talk about people do business with who they trust, buying a home is the single largest financial purchase that many of us will ever make. And so having somebody that you trust to be able to navigate you know, help you navigate through that process, especially when we're talking about language barriers, potentially in the Hispanic community, having someone that can really help you navigate that and build that trust is incredibly important. And so within the home lending team, we have been very focused on, you know, how do we increase frontline diversity within the team and actually look at who we're hiring and how we're hiring and um, making sure that they do mirror those communities. We're also making sure, and I'm holding the team accountable on our goals this year, to really start to look at growing diversity at the leadership levels and making sure that we have a pipeline all the way through the organization, not just at the front line. And then the final piece is I've got the team really focused on how do we ensure that our retention rates. So it's one thing to hire, but can you actually retain them and grow their talent and and grow their careers through the organization? So there's a retention measure to that, but also a promotion measure to that. And I want to make sure that we are retaining the talent and promoting the talent at parity to our majority populations. And this will, I like to say that the D and I in diversity and inclusion stands for deliberate and intentional. I think like any other business problem, you have to be intentional and deliberate about how do you solve these problems? Put a strategy in place, assign accountability to the leaders, execute on it, and then measure it weekly, monthly, yearly. What's the progress that you've actually made and hold people accountable to it like you would any other goal. And so that's the mindset we've really come into at Wells Fargo. And, you know, we've seen some good results so far and the accountability will continue until we get to where we think we need to be. 
You know, that inclusion piece, I think is, is really um, the one that's harder to define. So if you're a leader at a company, you can look at your, you know, hiring rates and you can look at, okay, are we hiring enough from this? But inclusion is just, it, it goes much deeper. And it's like, how, how do people feel like they fit at the table? Do they feel like this is, um, are, are they welcome? Are they empowered, encouraged. It's just, I think that's the hard nut to crack here as opposed to just, we're going to hire this many people. It's like, we're going to make an environment that supports those kind of people. Yeah, it really is. And, you know, the piece that I think is really interesting with that. And I think over the last year, some of the challenges that we've gone through with the racial injustice issues and social injustice issues, and, and it's brought this awareness to the table in a really different way. And it's caused people to really start to question, do I feel comfortable at where I work? Do I feel included in the conversation? Is my opinion valued? And I tell the team all the time, I want to know your story. I, every one of my, you know, 25,000 employees has value and they're on the front line talking to our customers. And it's really important that I understand what their story is, because I think by asking someone their story, it can really help understand how they see the world and it gives an appreciation. And you know, people, sometimes conversations about race are uncomfortable or people are uncomfortable with like, you know, what if they say something and I don't know how to respond. And what I love about the question, what's your story is as long as you show up sincere and interested to hear them out and to hear their story, then people will feel validated and understood. And all any of us want is to be known and accepted for who we truly are. And I think by asking people their story, you provide an opportunity that encourages them to feel more included, to feel more valued, and, and at a minimum, to feel seen and known for who they are. I, I love that last part. I really feel like going forward, especially if you look at this next generation, if you look at even just millennials, but then the Gen Z and whatever, it's like authenticity is very important to them and bringing who they are authentically to the workplace is very important to them. And I think that especially maybe in mortgage, it could have been for a long time. You know, a lot of people felt excluded for, for different reasons. If they were women, if they were people of color, if they were, uh, if they had a different lifestyle, like it, it just hasn't been the most inclusive place, right? So very exciting to see um, the changes that you guys are doing. And it'll be fun to look back and, and, and be able to chart those as we go forward. Yeah, I think so too. Well, you know, the last question I have is really um, about something that, you know, here you are leading this, this uh, uh, very giant lender. And, you know, the rise of fintechs has been one of the big stories over the last 10 years, but say, especially five years, right? I mean, that's when we started writing about it so much and an ongoing conversation, those five years, especially on social sites, right? But um, among people is how a legacy lender like Wells Fargo is competing and can compete with startups who built technology from the get-go to be efficient, um, who aren't trying to turn the Titanic, maybe that, that um, uh, you know, a larger lender has to do and who uh, maybe embody more that agile mindset that we think about with startups. When you look at the future of lending, are you optimistic about the big bank model? And, and if so, why? I really am. And it's the thing, um, frankly, that when I came to Wells Fargo, I was actually most excited about because I think the, the thing that differentiates the big bank or uh, a Wells Fargo specifically is the relationships that we have with our customers. I have been so 
blown away, impressed by how sticky the Wells Fargo um, relationships have been with our customers. And I think that opportunity, when you think about how much we know about our customers and their transactions, many of them have their you know, direct deposit from their their companies that come into Wells Fargo. They've got their checking accounts, they've got their banking accounts, they've got credit cards, and now they're coming in to buy a house. And, and so there's an opportunity through all of those interactions to really understand what the needs of that customer are, and then how do they think about their financial life? And how does that then factor in to being able to serve their needs? And what we're really trying to drive toward is how do we take people and technology, so truly create the synergy and seamlessly integrate those to be able to provide our customers this simple, predictable, and personalized experience. And the personalized piece comes in because we're your bank and we have so much of your you know, information, how do we use that information to not ask you for it, like we typically do in a mortgage transaction, we don't have to ask you for it. We know, right? We know you're employed. You get a direct deposit here every two weeks. I shouldn't have to ask you for pay stubs because I see your ACH every two weeks. And so how do we really take that information and put it all together to create this experience? And I think that's the advantage that some of the big banks um, have if we could really leverage that. The agile piece, I think, is, is really important. And I think that's just going to be the new way of working. I mean, you know, one of the bright sides, I think, that will come out of this COVID is how that's accelerated the need for digital engagement in the home lending space. I mean, our expectations from Amazon, I'll use them as kind of a great example. Um, you never have to talk to anyone at Amazon. You go online, you you know, place your order, and voila, it shows up the next day, sometimes the same day. And so I think that's been the new experience that we all, and new expectation that we have. Why can't the home buying process um, be similar? And so I think leveraging the information and data that we have on our customers taking that stickiness of that relationship and combining that with technology, I think that creates a huge opportunity for the big banks that I'm really excited about building that for our future. I appreciate that answer and, and I appreciate you being on. Thank you so much for sharing your insights. Um, it's been great talking to you. Thanks, Sarah. It's so great to be with you. Welcome to the Real Trending Podcast, where your host, Tracy Velt, managing editor of Real Trends, interviews the brightest minds in real estate. Brokerage leaders, top agents, team leaders, and industry experts share their success secrets, trends, and lessons learned navigating this ever-changing industry. To listen, please subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and more. Thank you for listening to the Housing News Podcast. Please don't forget to give us feedback and rate us on iTunes. Also, make sure to check out Housing Wire Daily, a podcast dedicated to the hottest news stories coming out of the Housing Wire newsroom each and every day. The podcast is available on iTunes, Spotify, Google Podcast, and wherever else you get your podcast. Thanks for listening and join us next week.